0: not in heaven. When I was a student at university in the late 1960s, the year of student protests, psychedelic drugs, and the Beatles meditating with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, a story went the rounds. An American Jewish woman in her 60s traveled to North India to see a celebrated guru. There were huge crowds waiting to see the holy man, but she pushed through saying that she needed to see him urgently. Eventually, after weaving through the swaying throng, she entered the tent and stood in the presence of the master himself. What she said that day has entered the realm of legend. She said, Marvin, listen to your mother. Enough already. Come home. Starting in the 60s, Jews made their way into many religions and cultures with one notable exception, their own. Yet Judaism has historically had its mystics and its meditators, its poets and philosophers, its holy men and women, its visionaries and prophets. It has often seemed as if the longing we have for spiritual enlightenment is in direct proportion to its distance, its foreignness, its unfamiliarity. We prefer the far to the near. I used to think that this was unique to our strange age, but in fact Moses had already foreseen this possibility. Listen to what he says in today's parsha. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not in heaven. So that you have to ask who will climb to heaven and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. It's not across the sea. So that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and let us hear it so that we may obey it. No, the word is... Karov HaDovah, very near to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you may obey it. Moses, in other words, had an intimation that in future Jews would say that to find inspiration we have to ascend to heaven or cross the sea. It's anywhere but here. And so it was for much of Israel's history during the first and second temple periods. First came the era in which people were tempted by the gods of the people around them. The Canaanite Baal, or the Moabite Chemosh, or the Babylonian Marduk and Astarte. Later, in Second Temple times, they were attracted to Hellenism in its Greek or Roman forms. It's a strange phenomenon. No one expressed it better than Groucho Marx, who said memorably, I refuse to belong to a club that would accept me as a member. Jews have had a long tendency to fall in love with people who don't love them and to pursue almost any spiritual path so long as it isn't their own. But it is very debilitating. When great great minds leave Judaism, Judaism loses great minds. When those in search of spirituality go elsewhere, Jewish spirituality suffers, and this tends to happen in precisely the paradoxical way that Moses describes several times in Devarim. It occurs in ages of affluence, not poverty, in eras of freedom, not slavery. When we seem to have little to thank God for, then we thank God, Baruch Hashem, but when we have much to be grateful for, that's when we forget. The eras in which Jews worshipped idols or became Hellenized, were temple times when Jews lived in their land enjoying either sovereignty or autonomy. The age in which in Europe they abandoned Judaism was the period of emancipation from the late 18th to the early 20th century when for the first time they enjoyed civil rights. The surrounding culture in most of these cases was hostile to Jews and Judaism. Yet Jews often preferred to adopt the culture that rejected them rather than embrace the one that was theirs by birth and inheritance, where they had the chance of feeling at home. The results were often tragic. Becoming Baal worshippers did not lead to Israelites being welcomed by the Canaanites. Becoming Hellenized didn't endear Jews to either Greeks or Romans. Abandoning Judaism in the 19th century did not end anti-Semitism. It inflamed it. Hence the power of Moses' insistence to find truth, beauty and spirituality. You don't have to climb to heaven or cross the sea. The word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. The result was that Jews enriched other cultures more than their own. Part of Mahler's Eighth Symphony is a Catholic mass. Irving Berlin, son of a cousin, wrote, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Felix Mendelssohn, grandson of one of the first enlightened Jews, Moses Mendelssohn, composed church music and rehabilitated Bach's long-neglected St. Matthew Passion. Simone Weil, one of the deepest Christian thinkers of the 20th century, described by Albert Camus as the only great spirit of our times, was born to Jewish parents. So was Edith Stein, celebrated by the Catholic Church as a saint and martyr, but murdered in Auschwitz because, to the Nazis, she was a Jew, and so on. Was it the failure of Europe to accept the Jewishness of Jews and Judaism? Was it it Judaism's failure to confront the challenge? The phenomenon is so complex it defies any simple explanation, but in the process, we lost great art, great intellect, great spirits, and great minds. To some extent, the situation has changed in both Israel and the diaspora. There's been much new Jewish music and a revival of Jewish mysticism. There have been important Jewish writers and thinkers, but we are still spiritually underachieving. The deepest roots of spirituality come from within, from within a culture, a tradition, a sensibility. They come from the syntax and semantics of the native language of the soul. The word is very near to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. The beauty of Jewish spirituality is precisely that in Judaism God is close. You don't need to climb a mountain or enter an ashram to find the divine presence. It's there around the table at a Shabbos meal, in the light of the candles, in the simple holiness of the Kiddush wine, and the chalot, in the praise of the eshet chayel, and birkat banim, blessing the children, in the peace of mind that comes when you leave the world to look after itself for a day, while you celebrate the good things that come from not working but resting, not from buying but enjoying. The gifts you had all along, but didn't have time to appreciate. In Judaism, God is close. He's there in the poetry of the Psalms, the greatest literature of the soul ever written. He's there listening into our debates as we study a page of the Talmud, or often new interpretations of ancient texts. He's there in the joy of the festivals, the tears of Tisha B'Av, the echoes of the shofar of Rosh Hashanah, and the contrition of Yom Kippur. He's there in the very air of the land of Israel and the stones of Jerusalem, where the oldest of the old and the newest of the new mingle together like close friends. God is near. That's the overwhelming feeling I get from a lifetime of engaging with the faith of our ancestors. Judaism needed no cathedrals, no monasteries, no abstruse theologies, no metaphysical ingenuities. Beautiful, though, all of these are, because for us, God is the God of everyone and everywhere, who has time for each of us, and who meets us where we are, if we are willing. To open our soul to him. I am a rabbi. For 22 years I was a chief rabbi, but in the end I think it was we, the rabbis, who didn't do enough to help people open their doors, their minds, and their feelings to the presence beyond the universe who created us in love that our ancestors knew so well and loved so much. We were afraid of the intellectual challenges of an increasingly secular culture of the social challenges of being in yet not entirely of the world, of the emotional challenge of finding Jews or Judaism or this State of Israel criticized and condemned. So we retreated behind a high wall thinking that made us safe. Truth is, high walls never make you safe, they only make you fearful. The only thing that makes you safe is confronting the challenges without fear and inspiring others to do likewise. What Moses meant in those extraordinary words, It is not up in heaven, nor is it beyond the sea, was this. He was saying, Your parents trembled when they heard the voice of God at Sinai. They were overwhelmed. They said, If we hear any more, we will die. So God found ways in which you could meet him without being overwhelmed. Yes, he is creator, sovereign, supreme power, first cause, mover of the planets and the stars. But he is also parent, partner, lover, friend. He is Shechina, from Shachain, meaning the neighbor next door. So thank him every morning for the gift of life. Say the Shema twice daily for the gift of love. Join your voice to others in prayer so that his spirit may flow through you giving you the strength and courage to change the world. When you can't see him, it's because you're looking in the wrong direction. When he seems absent, he is there, behind the door, but you have to open it. Don't treat him like a stranger. He loves you. He believes in you. He wants your success. To find him, you don't have to climb to heaven or cross the sea. His is the voice you hear in the silence of the soul. His is the light you see when you open your eyes to wonder. His is the hand you touch in the pit of despair. His is the breath that gives you life. Shabbat Shalom.